0: Welcome to the crossing today, and happy Palm Sunday to you. We don't have any palm leaves today. How many of you grew up doing the palm leaf thing in church? As a kid, I used to be the one doing that. If you'd like to, you can go in the courtyard, climb a tree and grab a palm leaf. Um, The security will give you about 30 seconds to get up the palm tree before they yank you off of there. But happy Palm Sunday. want to welcome you if you're watching from a microsite. want to welcome the Southeast Campus um, on this Palm Sunday and all that's happening there. It's incredible, incredible stuff. As Mark mentioned, next week is Easter. Take advantage of this week to extend an invite. There are cards still remaining at all of our exits as you leave today. Those are tools for you to use. We'd encourage you. Um, There's somebody at your workplace, at your school, in your neighborhood, in your sphere of influence that's really looking for an invite. They may not know it, um, but extend it to them, and it'll be an incredible, incredible weekend next week. Well, today I want to take you back for just a moment to elementary school, maybe middle school, probably not high school because they would never trust a high schooler to do this exercise. Remember when you would show up for class and the teacher would say, we're going to have a pop quiz. Take out a pencil and a blank piece of paper, put all of your stuff away, and there would be a noticeable sigh in the room. But then the teacher would say the magic words, you're going to get to grade your own paper. And everyone would get very excited. The moral dilemma that would now come. So I'm going to give you a chance to do that today, to grade your own paper. We're going to do something kind of fun. I mean, seriously fun. We're going to have a little test here. It's, it's, it's amazing as you grade your own paper because this exam is actually only one question. So you don't, even have to, you don't even have to write it down. Everyone can handle it. Here's the question of today I want you to ponder. On a scale of 1 to 100... How good of a person are you? All right? Don't answer right away and don't lean over and ask the person next to you. Just hold for a second, all right? Now, like, let me give you some scale. Zero to ten is the lowest. You're a loser. You're a sinner. You're the worst of all the worst. You're terrible, all right? A hundred is perfect. You're almost like Jesus. And in case you're wondering, no, you are not a hundred, all right? So let me... Just some more perspective. Again, you're pondering your number right now. If you're on the low end, you would be like an axe murderer, Hitler, people with five cats, Dodger fans, stuff like that, all right? So if you're, if you're on that end of the scale, that's where you're at. If you're, if you're on the higher end, you'd be like Mother Teresa, Billy Graham, your grandmother, those types of people, all right? Here's what I want you to do. I want you to lean over and tell the person next to you, all right, just tell them what your number is, okay, tell them. Some of you are trying to defend. Some of you are next to your spouse and they're like, no, 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 you're way off, all right. Some of you are trying to do that. Here's what I want you Let's just get transparent. I already got you. You're grading your own paper. Let's, let's just get transparent in the room. Here we go, all right. If you would call your number... If you would call your number 0 to 30, raise your hand up right now. We need the ushers to take you out of here, okay? If you're 0 to 30, just keep your hand up. They're going to come. You don't belong here, okay? We can't have you here today, all right? If you are, if you just raise your hand, you're like making all the middle people like feel pretty good about themselves, all right? If you're 50 to 80, where are you? Hold up your hand, all right? All right? Hold up your hand. If you're sitting next to one of these, keep your hand up. If you're sitting next to one of these people, just lean over and tell them, man, you're really good. Like, just tell them that. Like, you are so, so good. You're a great guy. Let them know. And finally, 80 to 100, lift up your hands, all right? You're so full of yourself, you're not embarrassed. You're just lifting your hand up wherever you are, all right? You made us sick your entire lives. We just can't stand you. Now, here's the deal. This exercise really elicits two reactions, okay? Whatever number you picked, it's either if you're on the higher end, it kind of gives you a superiority complex, all right? Whatever your number is, you look around at the people who judge themselves lower, and it makes you feel better about ourselves. I'm better than them. I'm here at church. I give occasionally. I try to help my neighbor. I haven't killed anyone lately. I don't cheat on my taxes as much as others do. I feel pretty good about myself, all right? So some of us, we get this superiority complex when we grade our own paper as far as how good we are. Others of us, we're on the other side of things. When we give ourselves a grade, we have an inferiority complex. Our response to that question is we feel worse about ourselves. It reinforces the inferiority complex we're already struggling with, all right? Moms in the room, you know what I'm talking about. There's always that super perfect mom at school. She pulls up to drop her kid off, and her hair is perfect at 6.30 in the morning. Her house is perfect. Her kids are perfect. Her husband is perfect. And you know you're supposed to love her, but you secretly hate her guts. It's the truth, right? And you look at her, and you feel so inferior. Guys, it's always the dude who has his finances seemingly perfectly in order. We're struggling. His stocks are skyrocketing. He just bought a new boat, and he's putting a dish on his cabin in Utah, Right? And so you look at his life playing out, and you feel inferior. And spiritually, which is the most important thing, this as well often happens to us. We go through this process of sort of pseudo-qualifications to look around and to somehow feel good about ourselves in a way that we can be accepted or be closer in our relationship with God to be good enough. And most of the religions of the world buy into this test and are based on this so-called good factor. Life is about, for most beliefs, trying to rank somewhere between 80 and 100 on the scale and somehow do enough good things to live up to some standard. And if you do pretty well and you, do, and you get a good verdict, you'll enter into heaven or nirvana or something like that. But Christianity, especially as we head into this most important week, is completely different. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, the central Christian belief is that Christ's death has somehow put us right with God and given us a fresh start. No matter where you just graded yourself, it doesn't matter in this moment because the cross is the central focus and it is not just a symbol, but it is significant and it is sufficient for all of us. And if the cross is True, Our score that we just did on our own self-scored analysis becomes completely irrelevant and absolutely insufficient in the shadow of the cross. And over the last three months, through the book of Mark, we've been walking through Christ's life, observing and learning about all the twists and turns. We've discovered his true identity and his true purpose. And all of these discoveries have led to this moment. This moment, which is the culmination of why Christ came. And today, we head up a steep hill where crosses will soon be lifted, one of which Jesus will be on. But in order to fully understand this climactic moment at the top of this hill, I want to take us on a brief journey away from the hill today. I'm just going to kind of twist you a little bit here today. And I want to take you instead of to the hill to begin with, instead I want to go into the desert into the, into the desert, the hot desert, to discover the why and the how of the cross. And to do this, we're not even going to start in Mark. We're not even going to start in Mark today. And we're not going to start at the cross, but actually we're going to fast forward beyond it. Our journey today begins not at a hill known as Golgotha, but in the middle of the desert with an Ethiopian. I want to invite you to turn to the book of Acts. The Acts of the early church, specifically to the 8th chapter and I want to read this story together and I'm going to steer you into a way that, that will hopefully illuminate why the cross is so significant and so sufficient for us. As you're finding Acts chapter 8, I want you to understand that we are intersecting this story of this Ethiopian as he's on his way returning from a visit to the city of Jerusalem where his intent was to worship, and he's now on his way back home, and he is in the middle of nowhere. Hang in with me just for a moment, and you'll understand how it all ties together. It begins in verse 26. It says that an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Philip was one of the leaders of the early church, he said to him, go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out, and on his way he met an Ethiopian eunuch an important official in charge of all the treasury of the Candek, which means queen of the Ethiopians. He was part of, the, a part of the inner circle of the queen of the Ethiopians. This man had gone to Jerusalem to worship and was on his way home, sitting in his chariot, reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. And the spirit told Philip, go to that chariot and stay near to it. Now let's be clear. we we'll pause for a moment. The trip from Ethiopia to Jerusalem, especially in those days, was difficult and long, and you read it a really strong reason to undertake it. The significance of that was this man must have been searching. Must have been seeking, trying to deal with something in him that was in turmoil as he made his way to this holy city. Perhaps he was deeply dissatisfied spiritually, but something made him get in his chariot and go all the way to Jerusalem from his home. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this guy to have a superiority complex. There's a lot of reasons for him to judge himself high on the 0 to 100 scale. Here was a guy who was a high-ranking official in the government. He was in charge of the finances. He had a ton of influence. He had a lot of things going for him on the good scale, at least as far as the good life scale. But there's a factor that makes his story unique because he was a eunuch. He was castrated. Sunday morning material, right? He was castrated. Not a pretty conversation, But because of this, it's likely that he would have struggled with an interior inferiority complex. So on the outside, his title and his position would have given him a feeling of superiority. But his physical condition would have made him at least internally feel inferior. Anyone who worked in close proximity to the royal family, the requirement was castration. Aren't those working in the White House today glad things have changed? It was a terrible price to pay, especially in a culture that placed such a high value on having descendants. So here was a guy who would have gone all the way to Jerusalem and the chances are that when he got there... And he went to the place that he thought he was going to be able to worship, that he thought he was going to be able to discover God. He would have been rejected and turned away because according to the Mosaic law, the fact he was deformed physically would not have allowed him to enter into the most holy of places. He would not have been able to be present in the worship environments. So after going all that way and traveling hundreds of miles and days of travel, he was turned away. He was scored as unfit. He was scored as not good. He was scored as unclean. He was rejected. And now he's on his way back to his country. In verse 30 it says, Philip, this early church leader, this evangelist, he's out in the middle of the desert and he sees this chariot. And he runs up to the chariot and he heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet. Do you understand what you are reading? Philip asked. How can I? He said. Unless someone explains it to me. He has no idea what he's reading. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of Scripture the eunuch was reading. It's actually a paraphrase that Dominique shared with us a little a moment ago. Isaiah 53 says this, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shearer is silent. So he did not open his mouth. In humiliation he was deprived of justice. Who can speak? Here he is, Ethiopian eunuch this words resonated with him who can speak of his descendants for his life was taken from the earth the Ethiopian is reading this and he gets electrified. He begins to have hope because he's reading about someone who parallels his own life experience. Someone who has experienced injustice. The Ethiopian may be feeling a bit of a raw deal in his life. And Isaiah mentions, this fellow, whoever it is, has no descendants. And because of the Ethiopian situation, think eunuch, he obviously would have no descendants. And when you didn't have any descendants in that culture, you were of a lesser value. Something was considered to be wrong with you. So he's reading this, and he's in the middle of the desert, and he's been rejected, and suddenly there is a ray of hope. But then he asks the question, verse 34, Tell me, tell me, Philip, tell me, please, who is the prophet talking about, himself or someone else? Who is this? And then Philip begins with that very passage of Scripture in Isaiah 53 and told him the good news about Jesus. The key question of the moment is this. Who is this? Who is Isaiah talking about? I want to know more. The question would have been familiar to Philip. It was a question that was threaded throughout the narrative history of the people of Israel. Because there's always been this shadow, this foretelling of this future Messiah who would come. You read it from Genesis all the way through Exodus, through the Old Testament. There was constantly these prophecies of this messianic figure. Someone who God is going to send to bring peace to the world. Someone who is going to restore things back to the way they were intended to be. The Jews were all looking forward to that. That God would send the Messiah, the source of salvation, the source of justice that would come to the world. And Isaiah was one of those prophets who was constantly giving us a glimpse of God's plan and what God's intentions were. He does it in Isaiah 53. He says, this is what's going to happen to this someone. He does it again in Isaiah 42. Flip over there for a second, just for a moment. This is a vivid example of this prophetic word that would have come hundreds of years prior, 750 years before Jesus was born. It says this, here is my servant. Remember, this is Isaiah, way ahead of time, whom I am. Uphold my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will bring justice to the nations. Can you just picture a Jewish family? They're sitting at the dinner table and the father is reading from the prophecy of Isaiah, what you're hearing right now, and the children are soaking it up and they're saying, someday... Someday, someone is going to come, and they're going to bring justice, and they're going to bring salvation, and they're going to bring redemption. Verse 2, he will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the street. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness, this, this Messiah will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on the earth. This is the hope that the Jewish people had lived with, had dreamed of, had whispered about for generation after generation. They would gather at their local Starbucks and they would whisper about it over a cappuccino and say, listen, I know how it is now, but someday... Someday it'll change. Isaiah talked about it. It's going to change. They would talk to their children and say, I know what you're experiencing now, but when this happens, I know how you're feeling, but just wait, just wait, just wait someday. And they waited, and they waited, and they waited. And they read Isaiah 42 over and over again, and generations passed, and yet they still waited. Nobody likes to wait. If we did that test from earlier A few moments ago, and used waiting as the scale most of you would grade zero or lower. Waiting is not a characteristic of our culture. And it is in this environment of endless waiting that we now fast forward 750 years when a carpenter from an obscure village of Nazareth suddenly steps into a place of prominence. He steps into public view. We've been reading about it. We've been talking about it these last few weeks. And he begins to preach, and his message is simply this, repent for the kingdom of God. The kingdom you've been waiting for is here. It's that messianic message. It's the one they had been waiting for. Guess what? The kingdom of God is finally here, and I'm it, Jesus would say. And he goes to this wedding in Canaan. At the reception, he goes into a side room and turns all the water there into wine. Not cheap wine, but good wine. And suddenly be, people begin to whisper and the buzz is building around him. And Isaiah 42 is pounding in people's hearts and minds. Is it possible that the waiting is actually over? And some who hear it initially, they say, finally, he's here. But others look at this carpenter and they say, really? And Jesus begins walking around in this environment and teaching crazy things. Like if you're angry with your brother, it's the same as murdering your brother. And people are stunned at his crazy teachings. And he begins telling crazy stories in the form of parables. They're earthly stories that reflect God's kingdom. And people are listening listening to him and they're reminding themselves of Isaiah 42. Isaiah 42, this has got to be it. And he does crazy things. He heals people. He raises people from the dead. And all the zero to 50 people in the room, again, raise your hand. Zero to 50 people in the room from our test earlier, right? Some of you aren't admitting it anymore. You're like, yeah, I'm not. not." He's hanging out with you people, right? He's looking at the zero to 50s, and he's hanging out with you guys. And they're looking around. And with Isaiah 42 pounding in their head, they're thinking, this is not what we imagined, this is not what we expected. And the 80 to 100 people in the room, all the good people, all the religious people, they're looking at him and saying, there is just no way. This just can't be. Even his closest friends, his disciples, they're lower, middle on the scale. They followed Jesus around for three years. They had good intentions, but they're still not always, getting the, the, they're not always getting a complete picture. That's why they would occasionally just ask questions like this. They'd say, hey, Jesus, I mean, we love hanging out with you. It's great, right? It's really great. We like the meals you provide. The loaves and fishes are awesome. But we hear you talk kingdom. And we like that kind of talk. We like that idea. So when will this kingdom happen? When do we get to rule? When do we get to boss some people around? When do we get to be in charge? And it was just the question that the disciples had which reflect the same question that the Ethiopian had sitting in his chariot in the middle of the desert. Who is it? Is it him? Or is it someone else? For three years, they walk around with him. They question him. They wait. And then they arrive at what we call Palm Sunday today. It's the culmination. It's the Passover. And everyone's coming to Jerusalem and there's excitement, there's anticipation. And Jesus comes through the gate riding a donkey and the streets are lined with cheering people like a victory parade or a presidential inauguration. And those close to him are watching the scene unfold and they're thinking, Isaiah 42, this is it, right? They're thinking, this is finally it. Our waiting is over, and all his disciples are following him, and they're waving also, you know, elbow, elbow, wrist, wrist, wrist. They're waving, and they're not even the focal point, but they're following the donkey down that road, and they're thinking, it's our time. Peter's punching John in the arm, saying, three years we waited. It's finally going to happen. They're excited. So they follow, But just a few days later, they followed him again except this time at a distance. And actually just a few of them, most of them scattered. They would follow him down a different path that led to a place where he would be crucified. And the crowds that were lining the streets this time were no longer worshiping or cheering, but they were jeering. He was put on trial, paraded in front of all the people, beaten and asked the question, Are you the Messiah? Are you... Who we read about in Isaiah's words. Are you who was predicted to come? And he would simply answer with these words, I am. And he would be violently beaten. And he would stumble down the hill, down the road towards this steep hill where he would carry his cross on his back. And a crown of thorns would be placed on his head and his forehead would be bleeding. Here is the servant of Isaiah 42. This Savior, this carrier of justice being violently hung on a cross. This is not what was supposed to happen. This is not how the story is supposed to end. And I want to take just a moment to read this to you from Mark's gospel. And I want you just to sit. You don't need to read it. Just hear me. And I just want you to ponder this moment as Jesus made his way to this cross. Verse 22 of Mark 15, it says, They brought Jesus to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. And then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him. Dividing up his clothes, they cast lots to see what each would get. It was nine in the morning when they crucified him. The written notice of the charged against him read, The king of the Jews. And they crucified two rebels with him, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and teachers of the law mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Messiah, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. And at noon, darkness came over the whole land until three. And at three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lima sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he is calling Elijah. When some of those standing, someone ran and they filled a sponge with wine vinegar. And they put it on a staff. And they offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone, they said. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down. But with a loud voice, he breathed his last. And John records that Jesus' final words were, it is finished. In the Greek, that term is the term we know as "to That to tell us that. It's a legal term. It means paid in full, paid in full. So if someone had a debt that they couldn't pay, in those days they would be thrown into a Roman prison, and the certificate of debt would be placed on the wall next to the prison cell where they were. And they would serve their time for as long as it would take until or until someone paid off their debt. But when the moment came for them finally to be released, the Roman guard would come And they would unlock the door to the cell and release the prisoner. But the thing that happened next was even more important because then they would take the certificate of debt down off the wall and they would stamp it or they would write over it with the same word, Tetelestat, paid in full. And the prisoner would leave the prison and would put the certificate of debt under his arm or maybe would fold it up and put it in his wallet. And if anyone would ever bring up that debt again, he would say, "No, no, 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 no." He would pull it out. He would say, "To tell us that my debt is paid in full. He could never be accused again." And that is what happened for you and for me. That day that Jesus went to the cross. And when he said, "It is finished." Christ took your certificate of debt at that moment in history. Christ took my certificate of debt at that moment in history. Paul describes it this way He said, When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, when you were a zero to 10 on the good scale, when you were a 90 to 100 on the good scale, doesn't matter. You were still dead in your sins. God made you alive with Christ. He forgave all of our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness to tell us that, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. Everything that Jesus was sent to do had been completed, but not in a way that was expected. The servant of the Lord from Isaiah 42, who was supposed to bring an end to violence, instead became a victim of violence. Who was supposed to bring an end to injustice, instead became a victim of injustice. No one was waiting. No one was watching. no No one was anticipating this move by God. And yet, it is finished. And now, this Ethiopian sits in the middle of the desert, Pondering the scenario, asking the most important question of all, who is this? And Philip steps up into the chariot and says, I'm so glad you asked. And the eunuch realized the length at which God had gone. in experiencing a voluntary, violent death to forgive and receive him, it changed him. So much so that what was happening personally in his heart, he declared publicly as he found a body of water out in the middle of the desert. And he said, I want to be baptized now. It has the power to change us as well, guys. In the midst of his brokenness, God redeemed the Ethiopian. In the midst of your brokenness, God redeems. In the midst of his searching, God redeemed the Ethiopian. In the midst of our searching, God redeems. In the midst of his darkest days, God redeemed the Ethiopian. And in the midst of today, which might be your darkest God redeems. The Ethiopian story is your story. It's my story. It's our story. And your score and my score is insufficient except for the presence and the interruption of the cross in our life. This cross is God's unexpected answer to the question of who he truly is and how his grace truly wins. Truly wins. On the cross, Jesus is saying, my kingdom that I'm inviting you into is a kingdom that redeems. It's not of this world. It's completely different. It's how I'm going to change things. I'm going to put others ahead of myself, and you're going to do that too. I'm going to love my enemies. I'm going to serve and sacrifice for others, and you're going to do that too because of the cross. I'm not going to repay evil with evil. I'm going to overcome evil with good, and you're going to do that too because of the cross. I'm going to give up my power and my life. But my revolution, Jesus says, comes without a sword. It is the first and last revolution. And the cross is the vehicle that God used to deliver his grace for those on the one end of the scale and those on the other, for those who followed Jesus for three years and those who discovered him in a chariot in the middle of the mid-eastern desert. The cross is God's unexpected answer to the question of who he truly is and how his grace truly wins. For God so loved the world he gave his only son, that we should not perish, but have the opportunity for everlasting life.